I mean, praise the Lord for praise the Lord for a praise team you can't hardly keep up with. I mean, you know the worship is good when you can't hardly keep up with it. And any hearing you had left is gone by the time you get done. You know it was great worship night. Praise the Lord. Man, this is, you know, it's been so great. I gotta, I gotta get with Eric after the service so I can figure out how to do a false ending to my sermons. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everybody can learn from a little Sam Cooke gospel song once in a while. And, and, uh, so I'm gonna do that and, it's been such a great retreat, such great camp that I know that you will want a memento. And I know some of you, some of your kids have been asking, our kids, where'd you get those shirts? So we, we brought a boatload of shirts with us, t-shirts, camp shirts we made. And there are some left. And, uh, you know, if you go back there to the table afterwards, uh, tell them I sent you and they'll charge you 20% more. Now, I tell you what, did anybody else get like a 20% off coupon for the UCM store here? Uh, somewhere I ran across the 20%. Okay, so uh, 20% off uh, tonight only. And because, like, why would you lust over UCM collectibles when you can have a memento of the time that we spent together. I mean, it's just been such a great time. I really, I praise the Lord for that. Several uh, speakers have mentioned uh, cost of discipleship, cost of discipleship. And I think, uh, you know, it's also good to, to recognize the cost of getting to camp. You know what I'm saying? Uh, the cost of getting to camp. I mean, I don't know if it is for you like it is for me, and maybe it's just this way, you know, if I've got some role that I have to play or something like that, but usually I find that the week before is when everything falls apart and it's going to pieces on you and there is a cost to getting here and then the very first night, by the end of the worship set, you're saying, yeah, this was worth it. I'm glad I pushed through. This, this was worth it and, and glad that I got here. So you be praying for me, be praying tonight, uh, you know, that for the evening sessions at least we can kind of put uh, a bow on it. Uh, I finally uh, finished my dissertation, got my doctorate. Uh, you can search for it. You can search for it on academia.edu and find out if you think that I learned how to talk to the academy or not. Uh, and the only reason I mention that is because I've seen some pastors get their doctorates and then turn away from the simplicity that is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.3, and in a King James Bible. And they became not just advocates of the academy, joining, but they were joining the ranks of the academy and started defending them and the skepticism that they engender. And I was determined that I'm just going to go exactly in the opposite direction. And inasmuch as Google has become our default English expositor, 
I, I want to see you get back to your Bible. I want to see you get into being a true biblical scholar, true biblical scholarship. So my, go my goal tonight is to give you a repeatable process on the simplicity of English Bible exegesis. You know, we've got rules that we teach you about how to study the Bible, but English Bible exegesis is letting the Bible speak for and then interpret itself so that we are all on the same page. Let me start off hitting you with a definition. Exegesis is the interpretation which results from a close reading of the words of a text, verse by verse and word for word. Brett Bartlett pointed out on a recent uh, Theology Roundtable podcast how Einstein said everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. And I say that for every text which is corrupted by the commentators and the scholars with over-complexity, there are a dozen which are destroyed by oversimplifying. So tonight, I want to take a complex passage and I just want to show you how to do a simple thing. Because simple English Bible exegesis relates the simplicity in Christ and retains the simplicity in Christ without oversimplifying the meat that makes you stronger. So given the fact that we have a preserved Bible with the complete mind of God for humanity today and all the tools to study it, English Bible exegesis is Bible math. It is by, this is my Bible math. This is Bible crack. This is the secret sauce of Scripture. Because my thesis for tonight's study is that all true spiritual insight is based on the Holy Spirit speaking to you through English Bible exegesis. Now, obviously, I, you know, I'll press, you know, call time out here just for a second, press pause, uh, and, you know, let you know that it's not just in English. And so if you're a Spanish speaker, uh, you have the RVR 1960. So you know that in English, we have the King James, you have the Queen Valera. Reina Valera. Queen Valera, we have King James. So you can, I mean, I just, I went to El Salvador last month. You can do the same thing with Spanish Bible exegesis. So reading even the hardest passage does not have to be confusing for you. All you need to know are these simple key things that we're going to look at tonight. You know, every preacher worth his salt does English Bible exegesis. He just never talks about it. I mean, I think it's just come so natural after you've been preaching for a while, you don't even think about it. And, you know, really, in a sense, we all do this. We all do English exegesis whenever we put our mind in drive and have to dissect and digest something written instead of letting our brains coast in neutral while we watch a video game. Hello, somebody. So let me start with Hebrews 6. And I, and I want to explain what to do. And so I've uh, put up on a slide a sheet 
that is kind of my exegesis cheat sheet at the moment, and I, I want to take the hardest passage from a hard book, which you hardly understand, and perform English Bible exegesis right in front of you, and for us to do this together so that you can see how this opens up truth. But, you know, let me first point out to you some uh, ruling lines. Let's make some... Uh, let's make s- Let's, let's make some lane lines of revelation. I want to establish biblical grid lines before we start. Exegesis is simply a close reading of the text in order to get truth and get its actual biblical meaning. Therefore, number one, stick with what the words say and mean in English investigate what they mean in context, explore what they mean under cross-examination, in other words, using cross-references, and complete your doctrinal understanding only after you derive that concrete biblical meaning. So to get a correct concrete doctrinal meaning of any book or any passage, any verse, you've got to understand this is letter A. Every book passage in Scripture has three simultaneous applications. Now, if it does not, then our Bible's not the Word of God after all. It's just a human book, and you can just look at it from only one of those three directions. And, and, and you just look at it historically and you just treat it like any other human production. So God's book has to be just like God. Past, present, and future all at once. Your knowledge of these three applications is what we call hermeneutics or interpreting the Bible. Well, what we're going to do tonight is not hermeneutics, it is exegesis. And yet we've got to play by this rule because since the Holy Bible is God's word, then you have a choice tonight. I mean, this is a fork in the road. This last evening service of this this camp, it's just a fork in the road and you're going to take one way or the other. And you can either let the words stand as they are and make up your mind that the interpretation will conform to exactly what is stated, or you can seek to oversimplify or less often overcomplicate and get the words to fit your preconceived notion of what they should say, not what they are saying. You know, letting them stand as written sometimes means that the doctrinal application flips between historical applications and not understanding the words coming out of my mouth right now is exactly why modern translators and modern translations corrupt so many data points in the Bible. They can't understand it, so they change it. Galatians 2.20. I live by the faith of Christ. None of them believe that. Every single one of them say, no, I live by faith in Christ. No, you live by the faith of Christ, baby Baba. 
And there are other places that say that. They change those also, not because the Greek doesn't say that, but because they don't understand what it means. They do not accept by faith that not only is there a dual application of prophecy, then and now, or now and future then, there's also a double application of some passage doctrinally, some passages. Therefore, this is letter B, do not let any one application overthrow or cancel out another application. Now, let me apply this so you can see what I'm saying. With regard to Hebrews chapter 6, while there's no hard start to our present dispensation, in other words, how God is dispensing eternal life in the church age, there's no hard start to that, but there is a hard stop to the old dispensation. So the rollout of the church in the book of Acts is kind of like a natural birth from conception to maturity. And things change. Things change at Acts 7, Acts 15, and in Paul's prison epistles, which were written sometimes after, sometime after Acts 28. But you know, the hard stop for the Jews is not Acts 2, it's not Acts 7, it's not Acts 15, it's not Acts 28. It's the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Because for 40 years, 40, the number of testing, God is grandfathering in this transitional generation. Believers who belong to the circumcision. And he's grandfather, and you know, it takes 40 years to do that. 40 years, I mean, at least once in their lifetime. Surely they ought to make the Hajj to Jerusalem and see and hear the apostles and what they're saying and what they're doing and any miracles and confirmations and anything like that. So he's grandfathering them in to let them know that the rules are changing and have changed. And they could come to God through the priesthood of Aaron as long as the temple stood. Even though the veil in the temple in the Holy of Holies had been torn, believers of the circumcision like Paul certainly did that. So the theme of Hebrews is is the key word of the book, which is the word better. Christ is better than that on every level you can imagine. He's better than angels. He has a better priesthood. There's a better hope. We've got a better testament, a better covenant, better promises, better sacrifices, a better country to go to, a better resurrection, all better. Now, context is king. And, and since I am starting smack dab in the middle of a book. Let me give you the backstory to the story of Hebrews chapter 6. Both the title to this book and its subscript say that it is written to the Hebrews. Duh! The author is Paul, and he purposely did not sign his name to this letter because he wanted Hebrews to read it. Some of them wouldn't have if, they, if he was attached. So those who were already convinced of what he was saying, well, they knew that he was the author of it anyway. And it doesn't matter what date you give it, because it is still written to those Hebrews 
that God is grandfathering into the new system during those 40 years of transition from A.D. 33 to A.D. 73, as God still used sign gifts to prove things to the Jews and was convincing them that their old rules have changed. This book is written to those people. It's written to the circumcision and also to Hebrews without distinction. You know, uh, who as yet do not believe in Jesus, but Paul wants them to. And so it's written to Hebrews who have been believed in Jesus for eternal life, just like the Gentiles, and also to Hebrews who have not, because that's the only time, two types of Hebrews they is. Now, uh, let's start in Hebrews chapter 1 just for a second before we get to chapter 6. Uh, they are named Hebrews, not Israelites or Jews, because they are all descended from Abraham as physical descendants. He's their physical father, and some of them now descend from him spiritually as their father in the faith, just like we do. That much background study, by way of context, gives you an author marker, an audience marker, and a time marker. But you know, the Bible is so much more specific than we give it credit for. And God gives us so much more sometimes than what we need because he knows we may not believe what he, you know, he says the first time we're in a certain place. And so God is gracious to give us an additional time stamp in chapter 1. Verse 2, God hath... In these last days, spoken unto us by his son. Now, there are two last days in the Bible, two sets of last days. And this is exactly where that double application of doctrine comes in. There is the last days of the church age, which we are living in right now. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. I mean, it's scary. I know, I know you don't keep up with the news, but I'm kind, of a, I'm kind of a news hound. And when Putin, who was dormant and latent for so long, starts talking about the golden billion, and he's not talking about money, and starts laying on this false narrative to his people so they will support what more he is going to do, man, that gets scary. I'm just saying, we are in the last days. Now, all I'm doing here for you is simply defining terms from the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, last days of the church age. Then there's the last days of the tribulation, which opened the millennium, Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And some characteristics are shared in common with each. James 5, 3, 2 Peter 3, 3. So likewise is the case of the hardest passage in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 6. God has spoken to us right now on earth, Hebrews 12, 25, in the last days of the church by his son Jesus as the word, which word was not mature and perfect, perfected in English until 1611. Now, I'm not saying that the King James Version is inspired because the Bible says that the holy apostles and prophets spoke. Not, not that they wrote, that they spoke, and that is inspiration. However, it was given by inspiration. 
Now, you know, you know these things already from our manuscript evidence class. The complete Bible was Englished by John Wycliffe. After the printing press was invented, there were seven printed revisions. And I'm not saying that every one of them went right back to Wycliffe to revise what had been done before them. What I'm saying is that Wycliffe had so Englished the Bible that the Bible had changed the English language. So while English people, English-speaking people had no word for the concept of baptism, he transliterated it so they would. And then over time in those printed revisions, well then that's, that's the word that has come down to us in English. And so the seventh printed revision was the King James Bible. And at that point, God stopped. Hey, it is not my fault. It's not my fault that God stopped. I mean, it isn't. And yet God did. I mean, God did this. I mean, either you got a faith-based view of history as well as the Bible, or you don't. I mean, if all history for you is simply evolution, well then, go on with your bad self. If you believe that God doesn't stick His finger in, and providentially that the Holy Spirit was not involved, something's wrong with you. I mean, it's right in front of your face. Just like creation, just like somebody was talking to me about the concept of intelligent design. It is right in front of everybody's face. So for 280 years, from 1611 to 1881... King James was the only Bible we had. Therefore, either it is God's words in English or we've never had them and we never will now because there's a lot less certainty about God's word today than there was then. So it is obvious from observing God's hand in history that the Holy Spirit took that seventh printed revision and breathed on it and called it good. So it was given by inspiration. Say, Alan, nobody else I know believes that. You know, nothing I read says that. I don't don't know if I believe that. I don't think I do believe that. All right, that's fine. But you know what? When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, I do not think I will be condemned for taking a higher faith view of the Scriptures. I'll take my chances. I'll take my chances of Jesus looking and saying to me, you know, Alan, you know, bless your heart. (laughs) I I mean, you went through this whole process. You got a doctor's degree and, uh, uh, you know, and yet you believe the King James Bible was the word of God. I mean, you, 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 you poor person. I mean, why didn't you throw in with all the scholars and help them recover the lost Original. You know why I know Jesus ain't going to say that to me? Because then I would be able to say, why'd you lose it? I mean, what the what? You're saying the Holy Spirit inspired it and then you lost it. And now we got to trust these people, whoever they may be, evangelicalism or even Baptist hood or not, 
and that somehow they're going to recover a lost original versus what your word says, that you preserve what you gave us. So I don't think I have any problem standing on the idea that what God gave, He preserved us, and it's not in Greek. Because the Greek is just not preserved. So you know that, because when the English translation process started up again in 1881, it was rooted in skepticism, distrust, and unbelief. So, so God, Jesus, God, God, God has spoken on earth through His Word, His Son, His Word. But when God's Son speaks from heaven, Hebrews 12.25, in those other last days, it will be to the same generation, the same people stuck in the same limbo before Jesus arrives. It is to the Hebrews who have access to the temple during this time after the rapture of the church. Are you giving me hand signals back there? Say what? Move the pack to the front. Okay, I got a front, I got a front pocket pack. <laughs> so now the question becomes, are these people going to be Christians? Well, anybody saved after Acts 11 is a Christian, but some of them will still be of the circumcision all the way to Colossians 4.11 and Titus 1.10. So if you say the book of Hebrews is standard Christian doctrine, I think you have oversimplified because that will not stand up to scrutiny of the English text. Now to Hebrews chapter 6. Simple English Bible exegesis proves that this is not a distinction without a difference. Okay, so just watch. I want to take the hardest passage in the Bible because if you can do English Bible exegesis here, you can do English Bible exegesis. And I can illustrate almost every part of it right from this passage. And there's no better way to explain the process than for me to show you, and then every other passage you look at will be downhill after this. Exegesis means you do a close reading of the text. That means you have to pay attention to the words that means their Bible-defined definitions and their biblically-defined context because the words are the key to the Bible. That's what the Bible is. Then pay attention to their clauses and phrases in a sentence. Pay attention to what the sentences actually say relate them back to the right context, and draw conclusions about what they mean only from what they actually state. Verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on under perfection. All right, let's start illustrating this. Noun, the word noun means name. So nouns are person, place, thing, idea, or belief. And they answer the question, who and what? 
So nouns are going to tell you the subject of this passage. And since English Bible exegesis is a close reading of the text, you need to read with your pencil and your colored pencils and your highlighters in hand. Don't just read with your eyes. I picked out the key noun for you as perfection, verse 1, because the entire passage centers around this. Verbs. Verbs show state of being or physical or mental action of the subject. And they answer what has or is or will happen. So verbs show time change. In other words, what we call tense. They have tenses. The verb plus its adverbs or modifiers function as the predicate of your sentence. Now, there are a few key verbs that I underline in this passage. Someone is leaving something, verse 1. Someone is going on to perfection, verse 1 and verse 3, while someone else is falling away from it, verse 5, and the result is God rejects them, verse 8. English Bible exegesis does not start with the commentaries and the commentators. It starts with the Bible itself, and it thinks thusly. Since this is a New Testament passage, is there any Old Testament example of the truth that's being stated here? And Bible readers recognize one obvious example is the generation that came up out of Egypt land. I mean, physically, they were already saved. Then they lost that salvation in the wilderness later. They lost it because they fell away from perfection. They fell away from maturity by not acting in trust on God's promises and entering into the promised rest. They stopped and turned back before getting to the spot where they could sit down. And in order to be saved, they had to keep going in the right direction onto perfection, and instead they turned back at Kadesh Barnea And the result was that God rejected that entire generation of the nation and it was impossible for them to be renewed and re-saved by repenting because they could not cross the Red Sea over again. Pronouns. Pronouns are important because they stand in the place of a noun, which noun is its antecedent. So note the pronouns. Because with the word us, Paul includes himself with the saved Hebrews that he's writing to. Since both the title and the postscript to this book say it is written to Hebrews, that's both saved and lost. But in this paragraph, Paul addresses ones who are like him. Otherwise, the danger that he's about to describe in verses 4-6 to make no sense with the rest of your Bible. So you have to rightly divide. You have to make that distinction. In context with chapter 5, Paul says, leave milk for meat so that you do not fall away, so you do not faint along the way and fall. And milk is defined right here in verses 1 and 2 as not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, the foundation is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3.11. So if you you have here something inwards, which is the same as us, then verse 2 of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So now you have something outward, which is totally different than us. 
Because English Bible exegesis does three things. It takes a comprehensive approach to the Scriptures. It does not jump to conclusions. And then it always rightly divides. Because there are seven baptisms. And, and the ones in Matthew 3 and Acts 10.37 and, and, and 13.24 and 18.25 and 19.3, along with Acts 2.38, are not the same as ours. There was a laying on of hands which conferred the Holy Ghost in Acts 8 verses 18 and 19. That was assigned to the Jews, but not for us. Something inward the same, something outward different, and then something future which he is about to address right here. The resurrection and judgment of some Hebrews versus others. Verse 3, and this will we do if God permit. So verses 1 and 2 are an exhortation. Verse 3 is a declaration and Paul's determination. And the reason this exhortation has to be met with this determination is because of the conditional clauses. So you ought to highlight the word if in every appearance in this passage. We will go on to perfection if God permits it, verse 3. But if they fall away, verse 6, and Paul is determined not to, they will be rejected, cursed, and burned, verse 8. So Paul says, we will do this, but if they do not, verse 4, 4, stop. The word for is a function word, meaning because of this. So here's why God will not permit some of them to land in the same rest which you and I enjoy as soon as we get saved. What is the reason? Well, let's take the next three-verse sentence and let's break it down. Verse 4. Okay, one sentence spanning three verses. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Now, three verses, but only one sentence. So let's talk about sentences for a second. They are complete statements of thought because they have both a subject, the nouns, and a predicate, the verbs, and the verbs say what the subject is doing. And sentences are composed of clauses containing subjects and verbs. So an independent clause can stand on its own and comprise a complete sentence because it has both a subject and verb. However, dependent clauses cannot stand on their own, but they have to refer back to the subject of the sentence and tell something about it. For example, and all the English-speaking people are saying, well, who's poor ejemplo? Why is he poor? Poor ejemplo. Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, what's your story? Sticking to what? Okay, so that is a, that's, a, that's, that's a dependent clause. Now, a sentence may simply be one independent clause, 
if there are two or more independent clauses, usually connected with a conjunction of some type, then it's a compound sentence. If it has one or more dependent clauses instead, then it's a complex sentence. And if at least one of those dependent clauses contains another embedded dependent clause, that's a complex complex. This is a complex sentence. So you may want to highlight the different clauses in different colors. The core independent clause is it is impossible to renew them again. And then the other clauses give the reasons. And notice how often a close reading of the text in English Bible exegesis requires you to supply an ellipsis or to add the missing word. So you have to add the appropriate words for the correct exegesis. Because an ellipsis is a word that we all understand from the context, but to really exegete the statement, you got to insert it back in. So they tasted the powers of the world to come. So all right, five things. And if you are reading with your pencil, you've already numbered them in this list. Number one, they were once enlightened. Then get you a concordance or go online and do a simple King James Bible word study by searching for any form of the word enlighten. Enlighten, enlightened, enlightening, enlightens. Any form of that word, and your eyes will be drawn to Ephesians 1.18, where the eyes of our understanding are enlightened in the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know Christ. So they got saved like we get saved, but is the doctrine of the soteriology of their salvation the same as ours? Well, this is a complex, complex. Let's, let's keep reading and see. Number two, they tasted of the heavenly gift. Again, doing a simple word study by looking up any form of the word heaven which occurs with any form of the word gift, man, it leads you right directly to the correct definition. I mean, I took three years of Greek and then various Greek exegesis, and I've got all the exegetical commentaries, and don't make me go there. Because there is nothing there but skepticism. Nothing there but uncertainty. Nothing there but infighting among all the nerds that, you know, try and one-up each other with what's going on. No, just do this. It leads you right to the definition. The heavenly gift is the Holy Spirit in Luke eleven thirteen, And, and... 1 Samuel 14, 29 is a perfect match meet to this passage where Jonathan's eyes are enlightened because he's tasting the dropping honey. See, you would figure this out over time if you read your Bible through three times a year. So teachers are really just a shortcut. Uh, keep your finger here. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. Okay, so Hebrews are saved like me. They have the Holy Spirit like me, or at least in the same sense he was given in Acts 2.38. Uh, but that wasn't a sealed filling because Peter is refilled, Acts 4, verse 8, and filled again, Acts 4, verse 31. So do not try and tell me what you think it means until you have believed, received, and accepted what it says. 
Have you dealt with what the words actually say? Because number three, beyond just tasting, they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. And since that phrase, made partakers of, occurs in chapter 3, verse 14, you know that this is synonymous with being made partakers of Christ. But note, note that there is another warning if. Watch, Hebrews 3, 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And don't tell me what you think it means until you've actually dealt with what it says. Because what it says is that someone has to hold fast unto the end or they lose what they originally took part in. So I don't have to try and arbitrarily divine what this means from the scholars or the original languages or any other source if I simply let the Bible speak for me and do a close reading of what it says. Number four, they tasted the good word of God. Now, if you turn to Psalm 119, right around uh, verse 100, I'll show you some things about punctuation. We put, you, uh, we put some definitions for you and I showed you some of the things that punctuation uh, does there on the handout that we've uh, given you. And some of the differences, you know, semicolon separates parallel independent clauses in the same sentence. A colon separates independent clauses where the second one explains the first one. So we, we explain some of those things. Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Wow, an exclamation point right in the Bible. Now punctuation, especially unusual punctuation, is something that you ought to take note of. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Oh, you mean like it was for Jonathan. Uh, where is that dropping honey? Where's it at meeting me in my time of battle right on the battlefield? Well, here it is, verse 104, through thy precepts. Because that's how I get understanding. And note the colon. Because the emotional response, remember we just saw two exclamation points and the emotional response that you ought to let it produce in you is delineated as therefore i hate every false way number five they tasted the powers of the world to come now if you quickly get uh, matthew 12 uh, in one hand the left hand and mark 10 in your right hand uh, whatever they had seen or experienced as they did throughout the book of Acts, which is the time that this epistle, uh, Hebrews, was being written. God gave them a foretaste of a glory divine, as we sang. So what is the world to come exactly? Well, the only certain answer that you can get is the one that I have to give you if, if you do a simple concordance search of a King James Bible. Matthew 12, 32. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, that's the first Advent kingdom offer, neither in the world to come, the second Advent coming of the King. Mark 10, verse 30. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in, the, in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children. Wow, how do you get a hundred mothers? With persecutions... Because he's talking about the dispensation we're in, basically. And in the world to come, eternal life. Okay, wait, hold it. 
he shall receive. He who? Hebrew. He who? Hebrew. In context, Peter asks, with reference to himself and the apostles, what are we going to get for following you, Jesus? And in answering, Jesus broadens it to any Hebrew who follows him and does not turn back like the rich men will that he was talking about. And for them, for any Hebrew outside the capsule of the church age, which we are in right now, any Hebrew on either side, either before the temple was destroyed or after it is rebuilt, you don't get eternal life in advance of the world to come. We do, they don't. 1 John 2.25. Now turn to Ephesians 1. This is what the verse says, so make sure you deal with what it states before you tell me what you think it means. We who believe today are placed in Christ. Hebrews, uh, Ephesians 1.21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. But that's us, not them. And if it's not just that way, then you can't make any sense of all out of Mark chapter 10, verse 30, which says they get eternal life in the world to come. Hebrews 2, verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So the world to come, contrasted with this present world of 2 Timothy 4.10 and Titus 2.12, the world to come is the millennial kingdom. And that's the world the Jews inherit, even though the angels thought they should get it. And Hebrews living when the temple was in existence, if they do not make the mistake that Paul's describing here, they can enter that world as well. But what happens if they do make that mistake? Okay, back to Hebrews 6. In other words, verse 6, if they shall fall away, stop. There are two conditional clauses in this passage, and they're both set off by the word if. So you ought to always already have this highlighted. Then pay attention to your pronouns. And you should run a rail from the they of verse 6 to the those of verse 4, because it is the same people. Running a rail means you underline each of those two words, and you connect them with a line. Out in the margin or right in the text. The Judaizers and those of the circumcision that Paul personally knew who already had made this mistake and sealed their doom. That, that is those people. Paul says, here is what we Hebrews will do in verse 3 and what those Hebrews who have fallen away have done in verses 4 to 6. And what those Hebrews are doing will be exactly the same thing the Hebrews at Kadesh Barnea did and in Judges chapters 1 to 3. Some of them even entered the land, but they did not labor to enter into their rest. And so the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Judges chapter 1 verse 21. Neither did Manasseh drive out the Canaanites. In certain towns, verse 27, neither did Ephraim, verse 29, neither did Zebulun, verse 30, neither did Asher, verse 31, neither did Naphtali, verse 33, and the Amorites, the Amorites forced the children of Dan up into the mountain, verse 34. Well, if that don't beat all, 
Because then the angel of the Lord shows up and asks them why they fell away and did not obey. Chapter 2, verse 2. So finally it gets to the point that it no longer says that the Canaanites dwell among the Israelis, but Judges 3, verse 5 says that Israel dwells among the Canaanites. Hello, some Laodicean. I mean, talk about a reversal of grace, a failing of the grace of God, just like Esau who was rejected and found no place of repentance. Hebrews 12, 15. So the danger of verse 4 now run smack dab into possibility of verse 6. If they shall fall away, now supply the ellipsis from verse 4, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify themselves unto themselves a Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame if they were actually allowed to re-repent again. So Paul's exhortation is followed up with his determination But he knows that for Hebrew saints, both at that time and in the tribulation, he has to include this option. And so for him to mail this book to the people he says he's writing to is in effect also mailing it into the future because that is God. And that is the absolute beauty of the Hebrew Christian epistles and the unparalleled majesty of the King James Version. I mean, this is so rich. There is so much treasure here. All you got to do is dig. Because now he can give us an illustration of exactly what he means. Verse 7, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it. And while he's talking about the rain that often comes on the earth, you do know from a simple word study of the word rain with concordance that there's a latter rain at the end of the tribulation. It's going to be a real gully watcher. We've given you the cross references. We gave you the verse references. And this is what simple English Bible exegesis is. And anybody who can read can do this. Psalm 72. Get get Psalm 72, your right hand. 2 Samuel 23 in the left. Especially 2 Samuel 23. I want you to look at that one. After three and a half years of drought, due to the prayer of Elijah, and for the reasons listed in Jeremiah 3.3 and 14.4 and Deuteronomy 11.17 and 1 Kings 8.35, the earth will be ready for a drink in preparation to bloom in the millennium. That is the desert which blossoms as the rose, Isaiah 35, 1. And then, verse 7 of Hebrews 6 says, Then bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. So what you find from your simple concordance search is Psalm 72, 6. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass. Now, I remember being in junior high. I remember being a junior higher. And if you really wanted to threaten somebody, uh, you know, hopefully with the idea you could avoid a fight, well, you'd say something clever like, well, your eh is grass and I'm the lawnmower. <laughs> I ain't going to say what eh is, but it rhymes with grass. <laughs> okay, the armies, the Antichrist, going to be mown down by us lawnmowers before the rain arrives. And while Israel will have passed through a veil of tears, this Hebrew remnant 
Psalm 84, 6 says, who passing through the valley of Baca, make it a well. The rain also filleth the pools. Christ at his second coming, 2 Samuel 23, verse 4, says that he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even as a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Okay, back to Hebrews 6, verse 8, but stop. Because now we got to talk about conjunctions because a conjunction connects words, phrases, and clauses in one of three ways. ways, Coordination, subordination, or correlation. And the word but is one of those seven coordinating conjunctions in English. You know, I didn't know, I used to know what a conjunction was, but then I listened to Schoolhouse Rock. Conjunction, junction, what's your function but is a contrasting conjunction to show why two states contradict and the function of a disjunctive conjunction is to show how what is true on one side of your butt is not going to be true when you turn the other cheek (laughs) verse 8 but that which beareth thorns and briars. What is that, I wonder? Well, I knew, I know if I do simple English Bible exegesis, because English Bible exegesis is going to let Scripture define Scripture, and so sometimes you want to supplement your concordance study with a word or phrase study, an actual cross-reference study. Sometimes center column references form a chain and they link together backwards and forwards. And sometimes they take you to a parallel passage or account for a comparative or even contrasting example. So cross references trace similar subjects where the same words are not used. And in Isaiah chapter five, so I, you know, if you just start with the cross references in your center column of your Bible, then if you want to consult the treasury of scripture knowledge, And you can add to your database as you read through the Bible on your own because cross-references enrich the clauses. So I used my Oxford Wide Margin Center column and I found Isaiah 5, verses 5 to 7. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take the hedge thereof and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall thereof and it shall be trodden down and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, which Jesus did at the first coming. He pruned it and digged it. But there shall come up briars and thorns during this tribulation transitional time. I I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it for three and a half years. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, who after the cross, but before the destruction of Jerusalem, and again after the rapture, but before the second advent. If they believe on Jesus, they are called Hebrews. The part of the nation who turns back, verse 8, is rejected. So once rejected, they're like the generation dying in the wilderness, and they cannot be renewed to repentance. Because verse 8 says, they are nigh unto cursing. It hangs over their head like a cloud, not a rain cloud. The cursing is nigh because they haven't received it yet, but it's there. It's coming. What is the end of those people? 
that segment of the nation who came to Jesus and then fell away and turned back. Verse 8, whose end is to be burned. And this is the baptism of fire reported by John the Baptist. Matthew 3, verses 9 to 11. The Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. You Poles and you other Hebrews who are determined in this transition to keep going on to perfection, learning exactly the doctrines of your Bible that you need, like the change in baptisms. Keeping up with that, it will keep you safe. But He will also baptize with fire the rest of you who fall away and fail of the grace of God. Hebrews 12, 15. Do not tell me what you think it means until you deal with what it says and do it comprehensively without jumping to a predetermined conclusion and by rightly dividing your Bible. Because what the Bible says is, 2 Samuel 23, verses 6 and 7, but the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. Jump to the last clause of verse 7. And they shall be utterly burned with fire in the same place. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And that is the word of a Hebrew prophet to Hebrew people. It ends the Old Testament. Just like John the Baptist begins the New Testament, Matthew 3.10. But you know, Paul... He's got to always end with the gospel good news, and so do I. Verse 9, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. The you is the Hebrew believers who have not fallen away versus those who have in verse 6. So pay attention to the pronouns, but the, because the you matches the same people in verses 10, 11, 12, and 15. There is every reason to be persuaded of better things for them because they work in a labor of love, verse 10, unto the end, verse 11, inheriting promises, verse 12, by patiently enduring, verse 15. So they were those Hebrews like Paul, who verse 9 says, had the better things that accompany salvation, though thus we speak. The things that must accompany their salvation are the foundational doctrines of Christ and repentance and faith and Baptism and laying on of hands, which shows both biblical apostolic authority and the sign gifts necessary to prove that the times had changed. Resurrection and judgment, partaking of the Holy Ghost, tasting the good Word of God. Better. That was a Hebrew set of discipleship lessons. So, despite speaking harshly, Paul says in verse 11, we are both persuaded and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. They will have to until the temple is destroyed and that portal is closed. Or in the case of the people that he was mailing this to in the future, they will have to in order to make it through the tribulation when that temple portal is open once again. Okay, Hebrews chapter 10, then let's race up out of here. This is written to who it says it's written to. You can't take it any other way and make it have it make sense as it stands. But remember, all Scripture has three applications, and they're all simultaneously true. 
and I can never use one application to overthrow any other. So my conclusion is simply the three applications of Scripture. Here is the direct doctrinal application of this passage. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, the six better things that accompany their salvation, well, let me apply that inspirationally. After we receive the King James Bible, Oh man, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. I mean, it will devour the adversaries. It may devour you, he, he says to them. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, instead of seeing it as the better thing, and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace? Now, I'm, I'm talking about this in a doctrinal sense, but in an inspirational way. When you see what the Spirit of grace did, in preserving God's Word all the way down through into our English language in the King James Bible, and then you reject it, I think you've done despot to the Spirit of grace. And you can't lose the same things they lose by turning away, but you certainly can lose rewards. I mean, you will certainly regret it. I think so. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge His people. Hebrews who are judged this way, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it's not just a prophetic application of the Jews in the tribulation. This is a doctrinal application of one group of Hebrews who bridge two periods of time. You know, anytime you have two surfaces of different kinds butting up against each other, you got to put a threshold over the gap in order to transition. So the motto of Hebrews is this. Mind the gap. I mean, what you've seen tonight, you can do this. You can do this if you'll just take one verse at a time. I mean, if you'll just take one single verse. I mean, listen to me. You can do this. Do not fall away. Do not turn back. And once you start doing this, well, then it gets easier. And as it gets easier, then it goes quicker. And as it goes quicker, then, you know, you can do a whole sentence at a time. And pretty soon you're just doing it all the time. And now it's like, it's like Neo in the Matrix. And you're able to look on this computer screen of all this garbled, all these garbled letters and numbers. And all of a sudden you see what's going on. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Jesus will draw people to himself. 
But the thing that drew people to Jesus was that he taught as one having authority, Matthew 7, 29. And not like the scholars, not like the academy. So if you want people to, if you want God to draw people to Jesus through you, then you need to understand biblical authority and you need to teach the Bible authoritatively. I mean, I'll just give you one reason why you can't use any other version than King James at my church. Because as soon as you step in with the NIV study Bible, it's going to tell you, it is going to say right there in the notes. Well, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 16, laugh half, half, half of Mark 16 shouldn't be here. Your ESV study Bible will tell you, well, you know, really, the first half of John chapter 8 shouldn't be here. You know, you're not going to teach that to our kids. You're not going to dispense to them the skepticism of people who think they are smart because they studied from other people who said they were smart and they got their degree from them. Teach the Bible authoritatively because you got biblical authority. Don't teach it skeptically. Don't use a translation that builds the skepticism right into its text or its notes or its footnotes. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before council, and that council is composed of rulers, elders, scribes, and high priests. In other words, before the academy. And these were the accredited men who had their degrees from Chicago, Cambridge, Edinburgh, Tübingen. And when they heard Peter and John, they started to judge them. And they, they said something really negative in Acts 4.13. They said, these men are so unlearned and ignorant, it amazes us. And we know that they are unlearned and ignorant men because they have been with Jesus. So in their eyes, by their evaluation, Jesus, the Word, was unlearned and ignorant in His simple, authoritative faith. And that will always be the Academy's view of a Bible believer who takes a faith-based view and does not spend time with higher criticism, lower criticism, textual criticism, form criticism, redaction criticism, historical criticism, etc., etc. That will always be their view of the person who refuses to view their Bible as a purely human book, or even if divine, that it has to be treated like a purely human book, rather than the holy book of sacred scripture, which it is. I mean, wouldn't it be great if the major negative comment that people had on your life was, hey, you're ignorant because you spend too much time in the Bible and not learning our things. Well, I know what results from going backward to a secular view of Scripture. I've seen it. And I grieve over those friends and mentors and fellow ministers who have turned back. I 
I can't do it because I'm afraid of what it means at the judgment seat of Christ. So I think it's time for a revival in the Word. Our country had an American frontier. President Kennedy had his new frontiersman. English Bible exegesis was the first and is the last frontier of the New Testament church in this dispensation. You know, I liked one of the things that Lee uh, Writing said about John chapter 6 when, uh, when he talked on uh, Thursday morning because uh, it matches so well with Hebrews chapter 6. And he said, you know, people fall away when you teach them doctrinal beliefs that do not align with their thoughts. Are you willing to accept revival in the Word? Show me your words. One of the same questions he asks, I want to ask tonight. Are you ready to decide what is true and what isn't? That's my invitation this evening. Will you decide tonight? Will you tell God? Will you make a stand? Even if you're sitting down to make that stand or kneeling to make that stand, will you tell God that you are deciding exactly what's true and what isn't? You know which line you're standing on. You know which way you're going. You're going to go on to perfection, maturity. I mean, the reason maturity there is called perfection is because the opposite direction only sets you up for errors, mistakes, alternatives. Nobody knows which one it was. Skepticism, uncertainty. That's why this, the maturity you need to go for is called perfection. You, got, you have something perfect you're aiming at. You're going through. You're getting from. So three things determine why you're here. If you turn, then second, I want you to tell me who you're going back to. And third, if you do go back, where are you going to get the, the words of eternal life? Where are you going to know that you have the words of eternal life, even to pass on to somebody else? So with every head bowed, every eye closed, this is your personal time with you and God. I'm just, you know, I'm so introverted. I'm, I'm so backward. I'm just, not, I'm just not one of those preachers to want to manipulate people or feel like he is. I, I mean, I don't want to call people down to the front just because I think that maybe it's an item that most of us ought to be together on. I mean, the hour's late. You, you know, we need to take care of the people taking care of our kids. You know, what you need to do, you can do in this instant, and you can make a decision because it's a very simple choice. You see God's hand in history. You know what God did. You know there was no alternatives for almost three centuries. In English, there were no alternatives. You, you know that was the Word of God. I mean, just compare it to the alternatives and you've got to be convinced it still is. Don't go back. 
Tonight, make that choice. Tonight, make that decision. And yes, for those Hebrews, it's a life or death decision. It's a heaven or hell decision. But you know, I think we've almost got to look at it the same when Paul talks about the judgment seat of Christ as the terror of the Lord. We've got to look at it the same. We don't lose our eternal life. But who wants to arrive in heaven smelling like smoke? Not being arrayed with the gold, silver, and precious stones that comes from standing on the right side and sticking with it all the way to the end. And I know it gets harder and harder the closer you get to the end because there's more and more skepticism than there was years ago. I know that. I understand that. That's what makes the reward so great. Don't give up your reward. Don't go back on what God has given you. Go ahead and stand and let's have a word of prayer and then we'll let the uh, praise team sing us out. Father, we thank you tonight. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that if nothing else got across, it's just the idea that being aware of these things, and we do it all the time, we do it with any book we read, we do it with any newspaper, magazine. R really, we have to do these same things with all of it. And yet, so many times with the Bible, we read it without reading it. And uh, we come away saying, as has been pointed out this week, we come away saying, well, what did that even say? What did I just read? Well, Lord, we got the tools. And yes, it takes the time. But it is so worth the effort. So God, make us those people in these last days that you can draw to Jesus through us because we know the authoritative Bible that we have and we teach it with authority. And the Holy Spirit uses it because it's the one that He's given us. It's the one that He breathed. Yeah, got done and He breathed. He breathed a sigh and said, you know what? That's it. Lord, I want us to stand by it. I want us to go forward on it. I want us to be known for it. And Lord, I, I am persuaded better things of everyone in here tonight and every single person who might be watching either live stream or later, I'm persuaded better things than them. Better things, because all the tools you've given us, all we have in the King James Bible. We ask these things in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen.